Hello and welcome to Careers by Design, the interviews. I'm Sharon Belden Castingway, Director of the Gordon Career Center at Wesleyan University. Today I'm delighted to welcome Film and Theater Director Thomas Kale, Class of 99, to Careers by Design. Thomas, you're arguably best known for your work on the Broadway sensation Hamilton, which explores the life and times of some of our nation's founding fathers. And I understand you were actually raised near our nation's capital in Arlington, Virginia. Uh, tell me a bit about your childhood. Were you just like a really bossy kid directing kids about on the playground? That, that's what you think of directors? Yeah. <laughs> you tell me. Um, I grew up in Alexandria, which is very near Arlington, oh, and it's okay. actually, in fact, even closer to Mount Vernon, which is George Washington's home. So, yeah, I grew up in, you know, uh, you know, in Northern Virginia, near a town called Old Town, um, and you know, the Masonic Temple, George Washington Masonic Temple, was where I learned how to both drive and sled, which was probably about 300 yards from me, and Mount Vernon was about 20 minutes. And you know, the the, the shadow of George Washington and James Madison and Thomas Jefferson is everywhere in Virginia. So I was I was aware of them uh, you know w without even realizing that they a were real people. They were just these things that existed. So I I probably just had them in my consciousness from all those really early class trips. I mean that that's what we do. That was that was the thing to do. So I'm I'm uh you know, I, I'm, a, I'm a product of that, and it's probably why I became a very marginal American history student for, for my time at Wesleyan University. Tell me about your decision to attend Wesleyan. Why liberal arts? Why Wes? Well, you know, living in Alexandria um, also put me in close proximity to a gentleman by the name of Steve Pfeiffer. And Steve had gone to Wesleyan. He was my folks' age. And, uh, you know, I was, I, I, you know, I, the beginning of my senior year, of high school, I wasn't quite sure where I wanted to go. I, like many other 17, 18 year olds, didn't really know what I wanted to do. Um, and Steve and I had a chance to talk. He had a daughter named Victoria who was um, also interested in Wesleyan. And so I went over to have dinner at, at Steve's, you know, talked to one of my parents' friends, which, you know, as a, as a senior in high school, isn't necessarily a thrilling thing to do on a Tuesday. Right. But I did that. And, and hearing about the school from, from Steve, it really sort of opened up uh, whatever, you know, narrow idea I, ha I had of what what's college was. And he really presented a place where the landscape was both fertile and open. And that's something that I certainly found when I ended up going there. So tell me about the types of things that you were involved in on campus. What did you find yourself jumping into? You know, I, I played sports my whole life growing up and went to school not to play sports, but I, I sort of had a, a certain... Uh, you know, I, I had, I, I don't know, there was a, a certain kind of person that I would tend to migrate towards. You know, I, I grew up really from age four to 18 playing sports all the time. I didn't do theater at all in high school. I took one acting class my senior year, um, and that was the only acting class I ever, I've taken to this, to this point in time. Um, and so I ended up living in Nicholson and becoming friends with a lot of people on the soccer team, uh, and then, you know... Uh, finding myself very early on writing the ampersand, which was the comedy section of the newspaper. My friend Anthony Benziali, who was a year older than me, I met him very early, and he said over, <laughs> over a lunch at McConaughey Hall, good old Mocon, for those that remember, um, and he said, hey, you seem sort of funny. I'm supposed to write the comedy section of the newspaper. Would you like to join me? And so about a week into school, I realized we had um, twice a week on Tuesdays and Fridays 
four pages to cover with comedy. And I probably could cover about one column inch with marginal comedy, but yet <laughs> that was our task. And we were then, I think, the first people fired from the ampersand uh, about <laughs> five months um, after that. What I didn't know is we'd replaced two guys named... Uh, well, let's, let's, let's redact their names and say that they ended up creating a show called How I Met Your Mother. Ah, so, okay. um, so, you know, I didn't realize the bar was so high. Um, and, uh, and, and, and those two really... Uh, you know, cast a pall on my on my my comedy chops. So I ended up doing newspaper stuff for for a while. I was a tour guide, um, and and then my sophomore year, end of my sophomore year, one of my friends said he was going to be doing a a play in the student run theater at Second Stage uh, at Wesleyan at the beginning of my junior year. When I would like to would ask me if I wanted to participate, and I said I don't really know anything about theater. I'm, I'm I'd be an outsider. And he's like, great, I need an outside eye. And this was my same friend Anthony, who's obviously had a, a lot to do with me getting pulled into the arts and. I ended up doing a show with him uh, in the 92 theater that really kind of lit, lit some some sort of fuse inside. And then uh, that really became the thing I focused on my last uh, couple years there. Though I did go to Dartmouth on the 12 College Exchange the second half of my junior year and had a wonderful time, but also had that experience that some people have when they graduate from college and say, oh, I wish I had one more year. Well, I did. And I went back to Wesleyan very focused and determined to try to make as, as much theater as I could while I was studying American history and American literature. And what was your mindset? You know, you're now you're a senior, you're working a lot in the theater. What was your mindset as graduation approached? How did you make that decision of what to do next? <laughs> well, I... <laughs> Uh, I applied to one job, um, which, you know, I wanted to, you know, really <laughs> spread out my options ahead of me. Um, I ended up uh, applying to a job at Arena Stage, which is a, a pretty significant regional theater in the D.C. area, to work in the office with the dramaturg. And, you know, a lot of my friends that I ended up living with were, you know, going to, you know, work in law firms are thinking about going back to school. My friends that were working in the arts, most of them were moving to New York, a couple to LA. And I decided that I wanted to go back to the DC area. And, and because I didn't study theater formally at Wesleyan, I took one theater class. Um, I took a class in script analysis my sophomore year. Um, I felt like I was a little behind and I wanted to try to give myself some kind of practical MFA program. Mm -hmm. I applied to this job and I, there was a woman, wonderful woman there named Kathy Madison who really, in some way, although I met her once or twice, kind of altered the course of my life. She, she interviewed me and then she wrote me a letter a couple weeks later and said that she had other candidates who had much more significant uh, theater experience, both professionally and in terms of their studies, master's degrees. And so she said, I can't hire you, but go get any job you can in the theater and then call me in a year and I think I can probably you know, find a place for you. So there was a, a, a guy who was a class of 2000 named Mike Block, who was a friend of mine at Wesleyan. And he, he knew, like, it was like his dad knew a guy um, who ran a theater in New Jersey called the American Stage Company. And I applied as, a, as an ASM, a, a PA, basically. So the kind of lowest rung of the ladder. And I walked in, um, you know, <laughs> to, the, to the interview with my, you know, my shirt and tie and my resume and my CV and ready to talk about my thesis on Eugene O'Neill. And the, the cover letter I'd written had one thing circled on it at the bottom, which said, I make a mean cup of coffee. <laughs> um, so uh, I had this interview. I forgot to ask whether I was going to get paid until I was walking out the door. And they said, yes, you will get paid. You're going to get $100 a week. And I ran the numbers very quickly in my head, and that seemed to be $5,200 for the year. And I thought that sounded pretty good, so I said, I'll take it. And I ended up working there and driving a van and sweeping the stage and 
you know, working backstage and run crew and really doing whatever needed to be done. And I was there for a year and a half. And that really was a, a, my MFA. I was there. I did eight or nine shows and I got to do everything possible there. I, um, I ended up getting sort of shifted into a lot of different jobs and, and having to, to learn, uh, you know, very quickly how to, how to, you know, how to stage manage, how to write the program, how to, um, how to drive safely and quickly into New York City to get the actors two to four times a day, how to run a spotlight, um, how to direct. I started my theater company concurrently with a couple of my buddies from, from Westland, um, Anthony, the aforementioned, my friend John Mailer, uh, my friend Neil Stewart, both were class of 2000. And we started making theater in, in New York uh, in 2000, 2001. So quite literally, I want to ask, how did you survive that period of time? You know, you're making $5,200 a year. You're living in the New York Well, that York was before area. taxes. Let's be clear. Right. <laughs> it, was, it was $84 a week after taxes. Right, right. Um, you know, I'm... I'm I made a deal with my folks. I said, I'm going to find a very cheap apartment. Um, if you can cover my rent, I would, I want to try to do everything else. And that's what I did. So I found a, I lived in a basement apartment that had no windows. I had to enter through the garage, um, which was a slightly rock star entrance, but you know, lost some of its luster um, after a few weeks. And, you know, I, let's put it this way. I can't eat tuna fish, SpaghettiOs or Campbell's chunky soup. Like I, I <laughs> I'm actually, it's, it's not possible for me because I, I ate them in rotation every day for two years. I mean, every night for two years. And, um, and I just, I, and I was working 18 hours a day and I was working probably two, three weeks in a row because there were no days off and I couldn't have been happier. I, I just, I, you know, I was, I was, I was hungry. I was thirsty to, to learn. I was around a lot of really smart people who were willing to answer my silly questions and tell me their stories. And so if I drove the van and you were sitting in the front seat, that was 40 minutes for me to find out how you got there. And so I just, I tried to make the most of whatever, whatever opportunity was in front of me. And I also took a lot of pride in the work. If I was going to drive the van, I would drive it um, on time and I would be safe. And if I was going to sweep the stage, I would do it effectively and efficiently in a way that no one had done it before. And so whatever I was doing, I tried to, I tried to do it at a very high level. So then what was your road out of the basement apartment? What happened next? Well, I started this little theater company called Backhouse Productions. And we had started doing some little theater in New York around 2000, 2001. And there was a gentleman named Alan Hubby who ran an institution called the Drama Bookshop, which is still here in New York. And they were opening a new store on 40th Street. And the Drama Bookshop, if you live in New York, if you were the most established actor or you just got off the bus, this is where you went to go get plays. So he basically walked us into this room down in the basement that was about 15 by 35 with a 10 foot, you know, high ceiling. There's about an inch of dust on the ground. It was this kind of white dingy place. And he said, I want to make this into a theater and I want you to run it. And so we said, if you buy us some black paint, we can make it into a black box. And we had a desk and a phone and a computer. And the only rent we paid was keeping the space programmed. So what I had to learn how to do was produce because we couldn't do something 52 weeks a year. And at that point, my theater company in New Jersey had folded, and I came into New York. I lived off unemployment for about four or five months, um, which was more than I was making. Um, I had eventually sort of been promoted to become the associate artistic director um, within the first six months I was, I was out at the theater um, and, and had this you know, incredible experience out there, and then it, the theater closed. And so I was on my own, and I was running my little, my little company down in the basement of the bookshop, and I through a friend that I had worked with, got introduced to a woman named Audra McDonald, who's a 
musical theater performer, an actor, um, and just uh, just kind of remarkable lady. And Audra at that time needed a personal assistant. Um, I, I don't mean to limit her by saying she's a musical theater performer. She's like one of the, like, the great powerhouse actors of our generation. Um, I knew her from acting in musicals. She, is, she can do anything. And I sat with Audra on July 4th of 2001, and... She said, I just need someone on the ground to help me, you know, coordinate. She, at that point, had just had a, a little baby. And, and I said, I, you know, if, if you're up for it, I'll, I'll, I'll be that person. And so I was Audra's personal assistant for about three and a half years. And what she cared about was me being efficient and doing my job. My priority was to work for Audra. If I was working for Audra, I didn't say that I was a director. I went and did what I needed to do. And then... During my other time, I would be down in the basement of the bookshop making stuff. And at this point, I'd met Lin-Manuel in 2002 and started working on Heights. So there were about three years where I was working on Heights and developing other stuff down in that basement and working for Audra. So that's sort of how I, um, that's how I tackled those first, you know, four or five years in New York. Tell me about how you first became acquainted with Lin-Manuel Miranda. Lynn had written a show called In the Heights that he did at the 92 at Wesleyan. And it was an 80-minute one-act. And a couple of my buddies were still in school then. I was driving the van um, as a professional. <laughs> and they told me that this very precocious kid who I'd heard about but never met when I was a senior and he was a freshman had written this show. And they said it was good. And they said, we're going to send you the CD and the script, and we think we should produce it when we start that company we talked about you know, on Fall Sale at 3 a.m. And so I said, all right, well, send it to me. And I heard the CD in 2000. And I, I just, you know, it was like all the hair on the back of my neck stood up. And I thought, wow, this, this guy is writing music for the theater. This sounds like music I would listen to. Uh, and I said, you're right. Let's find out when he graduates. And so he was a sophomore. So we, it was pretty easy to target May of 2002. And we reached out to him shortly before that. At this point, my little theater company is kind of up and running. And I drove up with my, my pals to go see Lynn's senior thesis at the CFA, which is called On Borrowed Time, and he did, in, uh, he did that show, and then we met him afterwards, and we said we wanted to work on Heights. And so Lynn, who was from New York, lives in Upper Manhattan, came and sat with me in June of 2002, and the way we like to tell it, we've basically just been having a conversation for 14 years. It just, we never stopped talking. We, the first time we met was a five or six hour meeting that turned into a meal that kept on going to a meeting. And, you know, and I just left rehearsal four hours ago and I was with Lynn, you know, so it's like, it just, we never, we never stopped checking in with each other and having a conversation. But that, that's when I first really started working with him was in June of 2002. So walk me through the process of getting a new unknown production to Broadway and what has to happen along the way? Uh, you have to say, you know, what's five years? <laughs> um, you know, it's one of these things. There was a lot of mythology about the show that Lynn did it at, at Wesleyan. I directed it, and then we were on Broadway the next year. Right. Um, Lynn did it, directed it himself in 2000, and the show opened off Broadway in 2007. So, uh, you know, that's a, lot of, that's a lot of time. So it's five years of development. You know, we went down in the basement and started working piece by piece. We didn't know a lot, but we were kind of learning as we went. Lynn was 22. I was 25. And we started to, you know, just bite off what we could chew. Let's look at the first 20 minutes. Let's look at the next 20 minutes. Two months from now, let's get five actors in the room and see what we got. And we just did that and kind of kept marching towards something. In that early conversation I had with Lynn in June uh, at the bookshop of 2002, you know, we talked about Lynn being in the show. Lynn was not in the show at that point, and Usnavi, who became the narrator of the show, was, was only in about three scenes. So... 
we had a conversation, and I suggested that Lynn play the role of Usnavi. And as we like to say, the role got bigger and bigger, interestingly, um, as, as Lynn continued with it. And then we started meeting people that, you know, had resources, um, meaning they knew people or had space or had a little bit more dough than we did or could point us in a direction. And so a woman named Jill Furman saw the show pretty early, um, you know, maybe six months after we started working on it, and then uh, brought a guy named Kevin McCollum. And Kevin... McCollum was partnered uh, at the time with a gentleman by the name of Jeffrey Seller, and they had produced Rent, which was a show that changed Lynn's life. And they were in the process of producing Avenue Q at the time. This was around 2003. And we then started the, you know, the, the process with them of, of basically continuing as we, were, as we were working. You know, let's try to see if we can just work on the first act and then put it in front of 50 people, see what it feels like in front of an audience. And we did that and continued in various places until 2007 when they felt the show was ready and um, they mounted a production at a theater they owned on 37th Street called 37 Arts, a 499th seat off-Broadway theater. We opened in the spring of 2007. And, uh, you know, it was, you know, (laughs) it was uh, at the time... It's 2007. If you had told me in 2002, that's when it would have happened. I don't know that I had any concept of how long these things took, but it it didn't feel like a long time because it was just let's march to the next signpost, let's go to the next checkpoint, let's see what let's see what we have and and see who we can meet along the way that can help inform and and build this world out. Our music director Alex Lackamore, our uh, book writer Kiara Hudes, our choreographer Andy Blankenbuehler, our designers, and you know we just sort of accumulated a lot of talented people who could do things that could help serve the play. And my job was to make sure we were all telling the same story and on the same page. So, so on we marched. There's a documentary on In the Heights, Chasing Broadway Dreams. And in it, you say, there are so many things that can go wrong every day and you can't insulate yourself from it. You have to expose yourself to it. Practically, on a, on a day-to-day basis, how do you do that? That does sound like something I'd say in my late 20s. <laughs> um, you just have to be unafraid to to see what happens when you put something out in the world. You know, it, it, theater is, is not made to be consumed only by the people making it. It is, it is made to be consumed by an audience. And so you have to be, you have to be unafraid and, and you have to trust in your collaborators and trust in the things that you believe that you're – that you're able to accept and process feedback. Um, you're able to sift through the, the notes and the thoughts. Everybody knows how to fix a musical. Everybody has thoughts about how to make a musical better. <laughs> and it's very difficult to do. And my job was to sit with the creative team and listen to all of that feedback and sit with our very intelligent producers and hear what was important to them and, and try to make sure that we were always telling the story that initially sparked inside of Lynn when he was at Wesleyan writing this, you know, seven or eight years ago. So that was the, that was the North star. That was the guiding principle for us. And, um, and, you know, we also, we we were, we were, we were proud of what we made and we wanted to try to share it. We, we thought there might be an audience for it. And our job was to, to help make the tent with the producers and the producer's job was to get people to come to the tent. And our job was to keep them there. So, you know, it was a it was a real collaboration from from, you know, fr- from all sides. In the Heights was, of course, tremendously successful. How 
did your life change after In the Heights, after that year's Tony Awards? You know, there was a moment that I remember very distinctly um, from the Tonys in, in 2008. You know, I, I, I was 31 years old, and, um, and I was standing on stage. Uh, they just said the name of the show, and the show won the big prize. And as everybody started to walk off stage and Whoopi Goldberg said, thank you and good night, I stood there by myself and I watched everybody in the audience get up and start talking about where they were going to go eat dinner or whether they were hungry or where the party was or what was going to happen next season. And I realized as I stood there, you know, alone, basically at Radio City, I might have imagined someone sweeping up around me, but that's probably, you know, just my imagination. I thought, well, it has to be about more than this. Because it's not that. It wasn't that moment. It wasn't that they, they gave us a trophy. It was the six years of getting there. It was the, the, you know, the, the relationships and the friendships that still exist that I knew were forged. And yet I also was a practical person and knew that of, of all of the, the prizes you can win, if your show wins Best Musical, you have a chance for your show to run for a little while, which means maybe the show can recoup and maybe you can uh, make a, a little bit of bread and save some money so you can try to be selective. My 20s were about saying yes to everything because I needed to work my chops, I needed to get better. And then I found as I moved into my 30s and I had an opportunity to be a little more discerning, I also was then aware of how much energy and time and effort it took for me to make something. So the thought of working on another musical, having this other one you know, there were still three more years of work on In the Heights. You know, there were two tours. There was the maintaining of the Broadway show right. that, you know, extended through 2011. But it, it allowed me to um, to feel like I was part of this community, to feel like what I had to contribute um, seemed relevant um, and useful to my collaborators. So that was very gratifying. And uh, on a practical level, it's, it's, a, it's pretty difficult to make a living as a, as a theater director. And... I'm not going to go all Brad Whitford with my uh, with my numbers, um, but you know you could direct a play. You could direct, if you directed two plays in New York at the the finest theaters, you could make twenty two thousand dollars for that year. And in any other world, people would look outside of that and say, "Wow, you directed two plays in New York." You know, and those are real numbers. I'm not I'm not exaggerating. I mean, I'm talking you know eight or ten thousand dollar fees at the best theaters you've heard of off Broadway. So there isn't really a way to make a living directing off Broadway theater. Um, you have to always find a way to supplement. There's a very strange thing that can happen if, if you happen to direct a musical that runs for a little while, you know, there's, there's an opportunity to have a little bit of, a little bit of freedom because there's some economic stability in a business that is, you know, uh, fraught with, you know, the, the carcasses of a lot of a lot of Broadway shows, four out of every five Broadway shows lose their entire investment right. and, don't, you know, and don't run more than, you know, probably three months. So you could also work for five or six years, not get the review, and it's gone like it never happened. So I was very aware of how fortunate we were, of, of how many things had to break our way, and, and I was looking forward to maintaining the excellence of the show and also trying to figure out how to continue to, to work and evolve and not just be a guy who directed musicals, you know, not, not, you know, but be a, be a person who was, was able to work on different size canvas and with different, you know, and, and, and paint in oil and paint in watercolor. So, you know, I ended up directing a, 
a four character play. Um, you know, right after that, I I tried uh, my hand at another musical, which was a revival because I'd never done a revival. So I just wanted to keep on doing more things, um, and I've and I feel like the opportunity that that Heights afforded me was was also it it gave I think the rest of the the business confidence that uh, that selecting me to lead their show, uh, you know, was was not the craziest idea in the world. That that you know there there might be a way to achieve some some level of um, realization of what the of what the artist's goal was and uh and and go from there when did lin-manuel miranda first share with you his idea for his project the hamilton mixtape well you know lin first mentioned it to me on august 1st of 2008 which was a long time ago it was mm-hmm. his first vacation and he emailed me mentioning that he was reading this book. And then when he came back from that trip, he told me about the book and that he was going to write a song. And then he ended up writing the song, which I heard. Uh, and then he went and did it at the White House. And they happened to record the song. And a few months after that, they put it up online. And all of a sudden, this secret that Lynn had told us about was sort of ricocheting around the world um, via the Internet. It was in 2009. So, you know, 2008, 2009 is when I first really heard about it. And then whether it was going to be a song cycle or just one song or a couple songs was still in the, it was a, it was a relatively unformed thing then. But in June of 2011, Lynn had finished a song called My Shot, which is the third song in the show. And he had been working on it for over a year. And we performed it at this little benefits at this theater called Ars Nova over on 54th Street where we'd done a lot of stuff. And, you know, less than 100 people saw it. It, it went well. We were standing around afterwards, and everybody was congratulating Lynn, which is usually when I like to strike. And I said, so you've written two songs in two and a half years. We're going to be really old by the time you finish this. So why don't we pick a date into the future, not too far, and see if we can work on two songs a month and see what happens. So Lynn got very excited by that idea, and we circled a date in January of 2012 and started really working in earnest. So that was when we both really kind of – buckled down. So June of 2011 was when we really started to work, even though I'd heard about it about a year and a half before. In the winter of 2015, you and your collaborators had to make a decision over whether to move Hamilton to Broadway quickly in order to make the deadline for the Tonys or wait and gamble that making changes to the production would bear fruit later. Uh, According to the book, Hamilton, the Revolution, your producer, Jeffrey Seller, called the decision to wait a powerful expression of Tommy's self-assurance. Do you agree with that statement? What was actually going through your head at the time? You know, I, it was a it was a pretty uh, you know open conversation between people that really trusted each other. You know, there was there was a there was a point of view that Jeffrey had that I really understood, which is there was a momentum behind the show, which was which was building and the producer's job is to take that momentum and to maximize it. And I also knew that if we were to move the show and just slide it under the wire, the best we could do was take the version we did downtown and remount it. And once you open a show on Broadway, that's it. Like there's, there's no going back and working on it. You don't really affect change after the show opens. And I knew that we could go deeper and I knew that the show could be sharper and I knew that the, I knew we could make it better. And Lynn was convinced of the same thing. And to Jeffrey's credit, he wasn't going to, 
wasn't going to impose his will uh, in, 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 in any way that was going to be, you know, in, in opposition to the writer and director of the show. And so Jeffrey and I had a lot of very long conversations. And, and you know, it was there, – there was – there was an exercise I put myself through. I said, look, I know why I want to wait. So let me see if I can now build the case of why we should go. And I, that case was not as compelling to me. And it just didn't make, it didn't make as, much, as much sense to me. And I knew with more time, we had proven throughout the years that, that time was our friend and that we knew how to focus and be efficient and use our time uh, effectively. So... I knew we could make the show better because when we opened the show, there were 10, 15 things I just ran out of time and didn't get to do. So you, you always have a list. You're always working from a list. And then you start out and you start previews. There's 60 things on the list. And by the time you open, there's 10 or 15 things that you just didn't get to. And you have to be able to live with that. But I wanted to get those 10 or 15 things off the list. And Lynn had his 10 or 15 things. And Alex Lackamore had his 10 or 15 things. And Andy had his. And it's so so we – we made the decision and we never looked back. As a director, you have to manage a lot of people, creative people, and essentially take responsibility for their combined output. How do you determine what each actor, each musician, each person who works on a show really needs to do their best work? Well, it's what I love about directing is, although as a bossy child, I knew <laughs> I would be a director. Um, you know, I, I'm fascinated by leadership and and I'm a code switcher. I, I, I like walking into a room of 30 people and knowing that I need to be able to communicate to all 30 at once, one idea, and then 30 independent conversations need to exist after that. I, I can't have the same conversation with more than with, with more than one actor. I mean, like, my relationship with Chris Jackson is necessarily different than it is with David, um, who played Thomas Jefferson, or Renee, or Pippa, or, or Lynn, or, or, you know, I, I just, that's, that's my job. My job is to take the impulse and the instinct of the writer and to try to find a way to distill that and to listen and respond and react to what the actors are thinking and feeling and figure out how to marshal that and access them in a way where they can they can do their best work. And I find that, that that's most, you know, that's, that's most pleasing when, when it exists with harmony. And that's when I do my best work. So I try to create an environment that feels like it has a big safety net and let people live in the place of I don't know and not put pressure on ourselves to always have some answer. I mean, we're working in a rather subjective medium. And, and I think that my job is to make space for everyone. And I, I pride myself on thinking about those things and being very conscientious. And I, I'm not always, you know, I'm not always right ab uh, about the way to do something, but I don't make the same mistake twice. And I believe very deeply that, that there's, a, there's a version of ourselves that can emerge if, we're, if it's nurtured in the right way, that is perhaps our, our best self. And my job is to try to, create a room where that's what people can bring in. And so I, you know, I'm endlessly fascinated by it. And, you know, people always say, well, what does a director do once the show is open? Well, once a show is open, the, now the work begins. You know, now it's not just making the thing, it's maintaining the thing. It's being a custodian of it. It's, it's keeping the show motivated and moving and 
finding new energy to come in when people decide to go off to the next challenge. So I, you know, I, I love that shift. I, I love the idea of, of trying to make something excellent every night. You know, Lynn and I talk about this a lot. Making a musical or making a piece of theater is like running a good restaurant. Nobody cares that the Friday night dinner was good when they come on Saturday for lunch. They just heard the food was good. So you have to go and make the food. And you have to make the food every time as if that's, that's the only time those people will come to your restaurant. And that the night before and, that, and the night after don't matter. So that, that creates a real standard that we try to, to achieve. Looking back, do you feel like there was one lucky break, one shot that led to the rest of your success? Um, look, in the sliding doors version of life, like if I don't go to that dinner with Steve Pfeiffer, I'm not meeting Lynn. I'm not meeting Anthony. I'm not, you know, I'm not in touch with necessarily, although I guess the argument of that, that, that film is that we all get there anyway. But, you know, that was... That was a pretty significant moment for me. I think that saying yes to Anthony when he asked me to work on the newspaper, which kind of bonded us, or saying yes to him when he asked uh, me to come and join him in that rehearsal, um, I think those were significant moments for me. Um, re reacting in an active way when I heard that album from Lynn, you know, doing something about it, being proactive, and not just saying, yeah, it's good, but like, you know, circling a date on a calendar so we could go and, and introduce ourselves to him and, and try to make him understand that we would, that we would take care of this thing that, that he had, you know, brought into the world. That was, you know, that, that could have just been a passing thing. I mean, like, yeah, yeah, let's do it. And then life takes you somewhere else. So, you know, there, uh, there's, there's, there's so many of them in those, those early days. If my theater company hadn't closed, who knows if I would have really made the leap to live in and move to New York at that time. I think I ultimately would have gotten here. But, you know, those are the kinds of things that, that all add up. And, and I think any of us, if we really look back and start sort of pulling up the wire um, to see where, you know, where it goes into the, you know, you realize how, how tangled and, and interwoven they all are. Thomas Kale, class of 99, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, well, it was my pleasure. I, I appreciate it. This has been Careers by Design, the interviews. If you enjoyed this podcast, help us attract new listeners by leaving a comment on iTunes. And check out our Careers by Design online course, available on iTunes U and the Gordon Career Center website. This podcast is produced by Sharon Belden-Castingway, music by Andrew Santanello.